A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, you're listening to What's the Crack? And today I'm interviewing Jenny Valentish, the author of Woman of Substances, which is available today on Amazon. Today with Jenny, we find out what's the crack with her new book, the media's representation of women and drugs, Jenny's own experience with the media, male-focused drug research and treatment, and what's the crack with all the language used. I hope you enjoyed the episode and remember to follow us on Twitter at WhatTheCrackPod. Enjoy! Okay, so let's begin. And could you start by telling me a bit about yourself and what you do? My name's Jenny Valentish. I'm the author of Women of Substances, a journey into drugs, alcohol and treatment. I grew up in Slough in the UK and now I live in Australia. I started out as a music journalist and now I write, uh, well, about music, culture, current affairs, but a lot about drugs and alcohol as well. Great, thank you. Um, so, as you said, you just recently uh, released a book called Woman of Substances. Could you summarise as best as you can to our listeners what the book is actually about? Yeah, it was very much the book I needed when I was younger. So I wanted to uh, get answers to all the questions I had about why my drinking and drug use got quite out of control and why I sort of never learned from the mistakes that you'd think that you should learn from. So it's partly research. I went around Australia and the UK talking to um, academics and researchers, clinicians, people who work on the front line of drugs and alcohol. Um, but it's also addiction memoir in that I use vignettes from my own back catalogue to illustrate my points. But it's very different to your average addiction memoir in that it doesn't end up with, you know, redemption and AA and talking in a very different language to the one that you started in. Great, thank you. And um, within your book that I've read, and I really like, um, you make a point of uh, saying that it's not your typical redemption, um, uh, so rock bottom to redemption storyline. Um, is there a reason why you felt that it needed to be said that this wasn't your typical story? I find it quite reductive the way that all we hear in the media, for instance, about people who use drugs is we hear about the people who reached rock bottom, they lost everything, um, but now they're okay, and it's like we can approve of them now. So it's this real kind of paternalistic look at what, what drug use and sobriety is like, and I just wanted to avoid that because it's really reductive and simplistic. So, um, for instance, I drink now, happily, after eight years of not drinking so while I'm not sort of advocating that people try that if they've given it up, I wanted to illustrate the point that it's not necessarily all about uh, abstinence and, um, you know, w once you quit, that's it, and your life follows a certain path. I, I just wanted to give more nuance to the usual kind of narratives. Yeah, that's great, because I think that it's kind of lost in stories, and you are right that there is that rock bottom to redemption storyline that's used a lot and 
it's I feel like it puts a lot of pressure on people for like mm. if they don't get that redemption storyline then mm. they haven't done recovery or whatever word we will use for that they haven't succeeded in you know removing themselves from a life with drugs it's like oh yeah. I, I'm not I'm not sober for you know all my life therefore I'm, I haven't done it right it's also I mean apart from the fact that it's a very Christian storyline um it's also implying that your life when you were taking drugs was terrible useless you're a bad person and it's only in quitting that you've become acceptable whereas that might not be a case at all you might have been a really good mum or you might have been you know someone who was just struggling with a lot of pain um but it doesn't mean that you, you've suddenly become a better person now that you've quit yeah, you are a part of the alcohol and other drugs media. Could you explain what this organisation is? And I guess with regards to your book and uh, drug use in the media, why is it important that it exists? So it's an Australian group. It's called AOD, Alcohol and Other Drug Media Watch, um, which is kind of a pun on uh, a programme called ABC Media Watch, which which takes publications to task for bad reporting so we're kind of doing the same thing and a lot of mental health charities do this as well where um, we're a group of uh, professionals so other people in the group are um, drug and alcohol researchers ex-law enforcement that kind of thing and we look out for news stories that are salacious about drugs or um, inaccurate you know maybe they're rushing to identify uh, pills that have been responsible for an overdose but they're misidentifying them or stigmatizing stigmatizing is a really big one for us so what we do is we look out for those stories mainly in the Australian media and then uh, one of us will write a response or a member of the public will write a response and then that's peer-reviewed by two others and then we contact the original journalist who wrote the story and we ask them if they want to have a right of reply and we try and just open a conversation about what um, irresponsible reporting about drug use looks like and what responsible reporting looks like. And we offer resources as well. So, you know, journalists can actually come to us and we'll put them in touch with um, researchers and experts to help them write an accurate story. Um, okay, so what has you, been your experience in the media with your own um, uh, book release and your own alcohol and other drug story? It, it's been what I anticipated it would be, but that's still been really difficult. Um, being a journalist myself, I kind of knew what angles that the, the press were going to go with. Um, and invariably, they've all gone with four pages of the book, which is about childhood sexual abuse. So I've, I don't think I've ever managed to escape that in an article, actually. So it, it usually starts with that in the first paragraph. Sometimes it will... The first paragraph will be basically a list of the worst things that have ever happened to me. Um, <laughs> we might get to something, you know, a bit more about the research. Um, but it's been really, it's been really tricky because it it seems, I think, to the public as though I've written one of those misery memoirs that you get in airports, you know, like Daddy sold me for a pack of smokes. Um, so again, it's it's really going for that titillating angle, whereas in fact. You know, I'd say a good half of the book is research and um, I've only used my own story to illustrate the points. So that's been really tricky, um, particularly if you go and do, you know, a radio interview. You've got about eight minutes. You're in there. You're in and out like a SWAT team. And um, they just want you to cough up this furball of trauma immediately. Uh, and then 
sometimes you're then allowed to talk about the research, but you've already been kind of set up as this uh, tragic figure. So it's very hard to change hats halfway through and put on your expert hat. So, yeah, nothing that's really surprised me, but it is quite disappointing that it's it's just going for that um, how low did things get angled? The questions will tend to be, when did you start? How bad did it get? When did you stop? And that's it. So there's a real lack of imagination. I think we could be asking people with lived experience um, questions about um, how they survived, you know, so about their resilience and um, about, you know, how they're sort of living their life now. My, my question now is, how did you hope for the narrative to be in the media for the coverage of your book? Um, well, ideally, uh, I'd really like to open more of a conversation about why people take drugs. Um, I'd like to see acknowledgement that many people take drugs without any issues at all. You never hear that. So they're non-gendered things. As for the gendered things, um, I'd really like to talk about the fact that men and women experience pathways into drugs and their life within drug use and pathways out of drugs very differently. Because women tend to sort of get treated as mini men, you know, as if we've all got the same experience. So there's a real lack of understanding there, I think. Ah, yes, my next question. So in your book, you talk a lot about substances um, from alcohol, tobacco, crack, speed, etc. Do you feel that this made it harder for the media to put you or the book into a box? For example, um, from newspapers, we're told that people who use cannabis are lazy stoners, those who use crack are non-white minorities, and those who use heroin are your slim, potentially with no fixed abode, white males. Yeah. Um, these are very brief stereotypes, but with your book, you cover so much that I don't know whether, did the media, do you think the media struggled with this? Because it wasn't an easy tick, I know what box to put, put Jenny in. Well, it's quite interesting, actually, because they mainly just focused on alcohol with me, with regards to me. That's despite me having, you know, talked about um, smoking crack and heroin and speed being my drug of choice. Um, hardly anyone mentioned that. And I don't know why. Isn't that interesting? It's like saying, well, we we do tend to other drug users in our stories, as in other, in adverted commas, we do tend to other people who take drugs but we can't do that with this person because we're sort of collaborating with them to write a story. So maybe we'll just focus on the alcohol. I mean, I should really ask people who interview me, but I do find it fascinating that I've been portrayed as this alcoholic, you know, <laughs> rather than somebody who, who dabbled in all sorts. Yeah, I do find that interesting because you'd think that um, a non-legal substance would carry more weight. I, I Yeah, I don't know. why. Maybe it's because the book is really, my story is very every woman. You know, it's not like I, I, I lose everything um, and I'm found in, in an alley somewhere with a needle hanging out of my arm. So maybe um, journalists want to use it to to kind of awaken the fears in, in their female drinking audience. Um, that's entirely possible, actually. Yeah, that is very true. Yeah, good point. Okay, so you speak in your book on the choice of language that you use and how different countries adopt for different terms of phrases, where it be more harm minimization or more harm reduction, a choice of language, and then more specifically how the media speaks in this language. Could you speak more to the stigmatizing words that cropped up with your, um, I guess, relationship or experience with the media in this book and why 
why shouldn't they be using them? There's just no consensus on language, is there? Because it depends what country you're in. It depends what kind of treatment path you work in or are following. Um, but I, I talk about the fact that I really dislike labels. So, you know, I dislike addict and alcoholic and, you know, God forbid, junkie. Uh, I know some people like to use them with regard to themselves. And I totally respect that. They, they usually have their reasons, you know, whether it be, um, a reminder from where I came from, or, um, you know, it, it bonds me with other people in this group. But I think only the individual should be allowed to use them, first of all. You know, it's definitely not down to the general public or the media to call people addicts or alcoholics. Um, the reason I find it difficult is because it basically puts us in this box. So you're now just an alcoholic, um, which completely disregards all you know the other facets of your personality and the fact that you might not be an alcoholic forever. Um, not to mention the fact that alcoholic and addict aren't even clinical terms, so what exactly do they mean? Um, and it's also really odd, I think, that anybody who puts up their hand for help with their drug or alcohol use immediately goes from being okay to, right, you're now an alcoholic or addict. And a lot of that obviously trickles down from the huge impact that 12-step AA and NA has had on popular culture. So everyone's familiar with the language of addict and alcoholic. But um, it disregards the fact that there are really complex factors that underpin our use. So, you know, we know that environment and upbringing and various genetic things contribute to, and trauma, contribute to why we ended up where we did. So just to call yourself an addict or an alcoholic is, is to kind of disregard all those. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've, you've mentioned uh, again in your book about how drugs are complex and that the problem is, you know, commonly minimised to the drug. Why do you think that the media misses all this chunk out? Is it literally just to like word limit or because they think that no one's interested? What, like... Because it's, things are so complex, I'd, I would suggest that it would be more interesting that way. But Yeah. yeah. I mean, most, most media stories are reductive. There, there is a word count. They've got to get to the point. So, um, so you know, we mentioned earlier the group I'm a, I'm a part of, AOD Media Watch. We actually contacted a few journalists, particularly journalists for the broadsheets, which should be more careful. And they said, look, we're not going to use person-centred language like person experiencing problematic substance use because... If we if we use addict, then you know that's one word instead of five or six, um, and they were quite stubborn about that, you know. And, I, and and it does it does read kind of annoyingly when you see that person centred language. It is very academic and intellectual. I understand that, but um, I think um, it's so reductive to to just use addict and alcoholic as if there's nothing more to a person, and that you're just adhering to the fact that they are genetically bound to this drug forever and can never be free of it. Do you think that there's um, an argument for impact as well as word count that they'd use these words? Oh yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> good point. Yeah, I mean, it definitely presses the buttons, doesn't it, to use druggy or junky or addict. Um, it gives us a thrill reading it. It gives us a, a vicarious thrill. Um, and, you know, this idea of goodies and baddies and heroes and villains. And, okay, we understand this story. We understand where it's going. It's familiar to us. Yeah, absolutely. Your book focuses on med uh, women in substances and the gender divide in substance use. Focusing, again, on the media reception, 
Do you think that your narrative may have been shaped differently if the book was Man of Substances? Or do you think that both genders received similar stigmatisation in the media regarding drugs? Uh, so, I mean, I think women get uh, judged more harshly if they're mothers, for instance. Um, you know, there's there's a real... I think there are a few media tropes for women um, that I can identify. And one is the slovenly mother. And she's like our dumping ground for disgust. You know, she, she's the sort of person we put in the town square and boo and hurl fruit at. Um, and then there's like the, the party girl who's the girl that we fetishize on the front page when she dies after taking a pill. And she's normally from a good home and she's blonde and someone will swear blind that she never took a pill before in her life. And then the other one I'd say is like the fallen middle class person, middle class woman. And it's, um, you know, she'll come from maybe a, a renowned family and it's kind of this how the mighty have fallen kind of jeering. So, so that's how women get treated. With men, it tends to be the more, more the hardened criminal kind of pointy edge of news stories. Um, you know, you tend to hear about bikies, or they're called bikies in Australia, bikers and you know, the criminal element. So I don't think you're going to hear so much about somebody who's just really struggled. Um, I can say, though, that the original publisher I went to, the book publisher, um, he envisaged that my face would be on the cover this, this despite me saying from the start, I'm not going to have my face on the cover. He said, no, no, I think, you know, I've got this great idea. It's going to be a real close-up, um, and your face will be contorted in anguish, and we'll, we'll have your mascara smudged and your lipstick smeared. And I was thinking, that's kind of like a, a post-rape image or, or something, you know, or at least something that something really traumatizing has happened, and you'd never do that to a guy if he'd written this book. I mean, the equivalent would be asking your male author to pose in a gutter having wet his pants or something. It's just really odd. It's like, why on earth would I agree to that? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I Oh, yes, my question is, um, I, can, um, I can imagine that raising the extent of gender differences in research and treatment in your book was quite a surprise to some readers. Could you speak more as to why the addiction treatment industry is geared towards men and why women are left behind? Yeah, uh, historically, um, well, if you think about it, it's quite hard for a lot of women to access treatment now because there's a lot of stigma around if you're a mum and you're, you've been using drugs and alcohol. And there always will be, no doubt. Um, but if you go back for the decades, that stigma would have been more and more and more extreme. So um, basically, um, any any sort of rehabs or detoxes or 12-step or programs have been designed for the male experience until very, very recently. Some have adapted and most haven't. So it, it's it's treated as though, as though men are still the norm and as if women are just mini-men and that you can treat women the same way that you would your main male cohort. And that's not true. There's a massive study in... in uh, Australia in 2016, just looking at alcohol. Um, and what it did was it pulled the data from about, I think it was 68 studies worldwide. And it found that not only are men and women drinking equally now, but women who were born after 1981, on average, are drinking more than men. So we're really kind of, we haven't caught up with the fact that 
um, addiction is just as much a problem for women as men. It may be true that fewer women access treatment for the reasons I gave of, you know, barriers to treatment. But for those that do access treatment, it's not enough to just put them into, into um, so-called gender-neutral programs and expect them to thrive. Because often they'll have had extremely different experiences. Um, you know, they, they, they might have uh, experienced domestic violence. They might have experienced sexual assault. I mean, probably both those things. And women's experiences of drug use in general um, are just very different. Their pathways in are different. So it's not good enough to, to have a gender neutral service. You either need gender sensitive services, which take into account trauma and, and don't force someone to share that trauma in a mixed group, which happens a lot. Um, or you can, you know, we need more women only services, it could be argued. Okay, yeah. And in your, in your book, you experienced, when you went to AA, you experienced a mixed group and a women-only group. Did you feel that you thrived better in the women-only group than the mixed? Yeah, I definitely did. Um, I wrote this chapter in the book called A Word From My Sponsor, and it's about AA. And because I haven't gone for years and years and years, I thought I should give someone from AA a right of reply. <laughs> so my former sponsor kind of makes these interjections all the way through. And I talk about the fact that, you know, there's, there's a lot of sexual tension in groups and women don't necessarily feel comfortable making themselves feel vulnerable in front of men when, they, when they've experienced certain things. And my sponsor interjected, um, I think this has got more to do with you and your relationship with men. And she was being smart, but she's got a good point, actually. You know, my experience with men had been really quite bad. If you, you know, if you look at all the accumulated experiences under the effects of drugs and alcohol or even from being a child um being in a mixed group for me was felt very unsafe but that would apply to a lot of women who reach the point where they need to seek treatment so i do think you need options so then i started going to female only groups and i i found that a lot more my speed i didn't have to worry about what was going on across the circle like you know trying to avoid eye contact or make eye contact and who's available who's not available all these sort of things that go through your head in early sobriety um and I, I made some amazing friends there who you know eight or nine years later I'm I don't go anymore but I'm still in constant contact with them and I know that they know exactly where I'm coming from and we have quite a similar mindset so it's really valuable you also speak in your book about uh, the gender differences within research in the academic world. Uh, could you speak a little bit more about this and why there is that divide? Yeah, so males are definitely the low-hanging fruit of research, uh, particularly when it comes to testing medications, for instance, because you don't have to worry about ethics committees as much because there's no way they can be pregnant. Um, you also don't have to worry about wherever they are in their menstrual cycle because that with skew results. Um, but they're also the norm when it comes to psychological research around drug use, because as we've touched on, men have long been seen as the norm. Um, and if you think about it, a lot of current research builds on research that's you know been carried out in the past. It's using those stats and then taking that a step further. So we very much have this very male domain um, and quite a few, female researchers that I spoke to when interviewing them for the book 
said either on the record or off the record that they'd been actively discouraged from um, researching women by their male superiors, by their male supervisors. So again, you know, hopefully this is changing over time, but across all research, actually, not just drug and alcohol, um, men are definitely used as the norm. Yeah, and even um, trials using rats or mice, they'll almost always use male rats or mice. In fact, there was a, a Melbourne-based researcher who, who analysed studies and found that of the studies she looks at, 85%, I think it was, uh, used male rodents. And it's, again, for the same reasons. It's, it's for, you know... It's so they don't have to worry about um, the menstrual cycle skewing results and, and so they don't have to worry about whether or not the rat is pregnant and is skewing the results. But the fact that we know that these things do skew results mean that we need to take them into consideration because it means that real-life women are also being affected by these things. And didn't you say in your book as well that there was an example of a, a specific drug that was used by women and then they had to either take it off the shelves or something because the women were reacting to it different than what the trials had said on the men. Well, they were dying. Oh, there <laughs> uh, we go, they were dying. <laughs> exactly. um, I'm not sure how many deaths there were, it might have been a couple, but, they, but it, it seems as though the deaths were because um, drugs, women respond differently to drugs. It's not just down to our size, it's down to things like we have different enzymes in our stomachs, we have a different, you know, muscle water fat ratio all sorts of things like we can't just use male data and extrapolate that and apply it to women cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com has there been any um is this being known about in the research world? Are people actively trying to change this? No, there are, there's definitely um, checks and balances being put into place to make sure that this does change. Um, particularly, I think it was in the field of heart disease. Um, more women actually suffer from heart disease than men. But it's been observed that, you know, the, the vast majority of studies are done on men. So there was actually some kind of push that came into place there I think it was in the 90s to say this has got to stop this has got to change good and um when you were writing this book and like finding all the uh research and literature behind everything of your journey was it was it very cathartic writing it and finding out all the information out no no No, it is now but no when writing it it was really really awful process actually um because you're definitely you definitely haven't popped up the other uh, you definitely haven't popped up out of the other side at the point that you're writing so it was there was a hierarchy of worry you know am i am i upsetting my parents am i going to be representing the academics poorly what are people going to think when they read this bit uh so it was really tricky i mean i I did everything I could from the memoir point of view to make sure people in my life were okay. So I gave people who featured in the book, most of them, the chance to read their chapters and respond and change things. And actually nobody changed anything. But even so, yeah, it was um, a, a real kind of period of worry. And I had to write two chapters a month because I had a very tight deadline. So that was 
that was working every day extremely intensely with no time for, you know, what we popularly call self-care. So it wasn't until I'd got the book back from the printer that there was this kind of blissful window of, wow, I've written something that's pretty good. And I feel like I've got it all out of my system. And then that kind of window shut again when I had to talk about it uh, in interviews, which proved to be quite tricky. But yeah, I've now come out the other side again where that's winding up and it feels like I can say goodbye to that whole two decades of struggle. So, I mean, not many people have the opportunity to do that. So I'm, I'm really, really fortunate. Is with your work with alcohol, alcohol and other drugs media watch and as a journalist as you are now, is there anything that could be done with the media to make it um, a more gender neutral or positive space for the stories around drug use? Like what are the aims? I guess what are the aims of the AOD Media Watch in order to continue working and continue continue not battling the media, but um, negotiating and having these open discussions with them? Yeah, so they, I mean, we're twofold. <laughs> we do have the kind of the, the critiquing uh, prong, if you like, but we also offer resources and, you know, want to start conversations. So I think the public in general, not just, you know, groups like ours, needs to hold media accountable. We've all got social media, you can do that. You, you can look at a story that's stigmatizing, that uses stigmatizing language or, you know, is, is pretty outrageous in some other way, and you can respond. Um, and, and I think that's really positive in this age of you know, having platforms where everyone's got a voice. I think we've all got a bit of a social responsibility to do that. Um, and I do think, slowly but surely, the media is changing. You know, it's, it's not just in the area of addiction that people are encouraged to use person-centred language now. It's in the areas of disability and mental health. And slowly but surely, that message is definitely trickling through. And that was the interview with Jenny Valentish. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, her book is available on Amazon. You can search Woman of Substances or you can find the link in this episode's bio. See you next time.